0: Odd Conduit Media. Hey, Dreamers. Producer Pat here with a small audio note. Ben's sound quality is a little off this week. He's traveling overseas, and we're just working with what we have. But fear not. The quality of the episode is on point as always, and we'll be back next week with that crispy audio that you've come to love from us. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I have. Peace. The Sandman Unlocked. and welcome to another episode of the Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of the Sandman issue 10, The Doll's House. I'm joined by two wonderfully awake co-hosts, Ashley.
1: Hey. (laughs)
2: And Sean. didn't sound that awake.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to be honest. I don't want to deceive anybody.
2: What am I desire?
1: Hi everyone. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we will let you know who created the issue. Then we'll go to the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. We follow all that up with the deep dive when we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our non-Morpheus character. So there you have it.
0: Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Sean, over to you for the
2: rundown. All right, so here we have the Sandman, issue 10, The Doll's House. And uh, tickling the old typewriter keys... Um, or maybe word processor. I don't know what he's using in 89. We've got Neil Gaiman writing. Putting graphite to paper as penciler. We've got my boy Mikey D, Mike Dringenberg. As inker, as always, we've got Malcolm Jones III. Original colorist, Robbie Bush. Uh, recolored for later editions by All Studios. We've got associate editor, Art Young. And editor, Karen Berger. And Ashley, let's go over to you for the catch up.
1: Yes. Okay. So where we had left off up to this point, Morpheus had to gather his three artifacts from the powers that be. He has a pep talk from his sister, Death herself, and he's been processing what his role as one of the endless is, how he functions as the lord of the dreaming. So he returns to the epicenter of such things as dream stuff. And that is where we find him in this issue. Ben, on over to you for the breakdown.
0: So part one, as you can tell, there are going to be more parts. And this is really setting the groundwork, introducing us to some new characters that we are going to need to know. So first off, it begins with an introduction of Desire. We have seen them kind of sprinkled throughout a little bit, and we're kind of understanding that they are actively working against Dream in this case. And we get introduced to Despair, one of the other seven and see that this is something that they're both excited about, and they're excited about this idea of a dream vortex, and what that might portend for, for Dream and his potential undoing. We're then introduced to the walkers. So we have a few of them. So the first that we have is we have Unity Kincaid, who's not really a walker, uh, but she will create the walkers that we will come to to know and love. We're introduced to the mother of Rose. And then, of course, we have Rose as well. So we have the these three women. And this issue is really about Rose and her mother, Miranda, going to London to meet with Someone that they are unsure of who has requested that they come meet, but it turns out that that is Miranda's mother, Rose's great grandmother, who is Unity Kincaid. And so what we have here is Rose, we're going to find out, uh, becomes an integral part of the story as she seems to be having dreams that are very realistic. Is the wrong word, but there there's something different about them and they feel really tangible. And she feels like there's this kind of like breakage and slippage starting to happen between herself and and the dreaming and, and what's happening. And she's also visited by the fates in this issue. And we learn that there's some kind of relationship there where they wish that they would be able to help her, but, uh, can't quite directly interfere and then at the same time we finish off the issue by learning that there are some missing arcanum from the dreaming and those two things are going to drive a lot of the story that's in the doll's house do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden nintendo cartridge to get it to work get the dust out of it all right here we go Yes! Let's get it! Now the screen's gray. Aw man! Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Whoa, that's mom, uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait! Pause it! Pause it! Turn off the TV! Do you Shh, think she's don't gone? Make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcaster! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcaster. So with that, we are going to jump right in here to take a look at a lot of the symbolism that we see here in this first issue and so sean i know that you had wanted to look out for the symbols of dolls that we see recur throughout this first issue
2: yeah totally um You know, last week, uh, you might have noticed that I really didn't talk that much about the story or writing, really. It was like all art. It was inking and coloring. Um, And I feel like that's because we needed to start getting into the doll's house proper to really start exploring the themes and understanding what old Neil is doing here. Um, When he was asked about what the Doll's House storyline is about, right? According to Neil Gaiman, it's, quote, about women and men's attitudes to women, about the houses and walls that people build around themselves and each other for protection or for imprisonment or both, and about the tearing down of those walls. Uh, And then in the lovely Sandman Companion by Highbender, Highbender adds that, you know the title itself is a nod to the classic uh, Ibsen play about a woman liberating liberating herself from traditional roles, um, and it was also inspired by a children's book called The Doll's House um, by Rumor Gaden. Um, so I think that's all sort of more or less um, correct. You know, the Sandman it's a it's such a rich comic um, and kind of just like. Joyful in a way because you can see, you know, in the first volume, just like how much fun Neil is having with these characters and these very clever situations. And then in the second volume, you can still see that, but I feel like it's here that he really starts to get serious about the work as literature. You know, it's not, it's not just an adventure story. A Doll's House has ideas it wants to explore and the story is so great to me because of how those ideas are explored as themes through the various characters. So we can kind of think about how dolls, houses, and doll houses function as symbol as they kind of reoccur uh, throughout the story arc. So let's talk about what those do, uh, what they might mean in different situations to different people, and how they're expressed in the book. And I'm going to be focusing on dolls in this first section, I'm going to be talking about some overarching themes here, so I'll be referencing some of the story you know we haven't come across yet. But because your you listener are probably familiar with the plot as a either a reader or like a viewer of the show, I don't feel too bad about it. And I'll also be trying not to spell too much out, spoiler wise, uh, only in the purpose of like getting to some of these core ideas that we should be on the lookout for. And I think the first one of those worth mentioning are dolls. So we got to think about like what we think of when we think of dolls. And I kind of think of it from a, a certain perspective, you know, dolls are, are are tools that allow us to play pretend, you know, they're fantasies that allow us to explore, um, but safely, like explore safely, you know, in a, in a way that's protected. So we can kind of, keep our walls up because there's no real risk of consequences. Um, they kind of allow us to practice at relationships, you know, without risking exposing yourself too much or or harming uh, someone else, at least someone you'd think of as like sentient, as like an equal, right? Um which is all well and good if you're the one playing with the doll and you decide like who's an equal and who's not, but less so if you're the doll, right? Um, So, you know, it, in some ways it's almost a relation of kind of domination. And this idea of like treating someone as a doll of playing with them is one that we can see uh, recur throughout the storyline. So we can see that, and, and you know, in other types of dolls, uh, in places like in the previous issue, right? Dream with Nada. Uh, he doesn't really care about her life or her responsibilities or what she wants. He's really only concerned with how it affects him. You know, he's in many ways he's treating her as a doll. And I'll just call attention quickly to the moment where she, like, you know, it. She like takes her virginity with a rock, right? And he touches her and heals her. He like fixes her like a broken toy, basically. And I also want to call attention to the moment in this issue where the very last page, right? We've got that introduction of the Corinthian introduced way later than in the TV show. Um, We're seeing from his perspective and he's got, you know, he's got a, a a young man like naked and tied up in a bathroom and he's trying to, you know, he's saying like, oh, we're just going to we're just going to play. Right. It's playing to him. It's literally him playing with 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 something he thinks of as, as a doll is not worthy of any other type of consideration. But we can see this throughout the story developing uh, when we get to introducing um Hector and Lyda, we'll see how they're sort of acting as the dolls of Brute and Glob, the escaped nightmares, you know. We'll we'll see them, we'll see how they're just being sort of set up as 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 you know dumb patsies, basically. Uh we'll also see this relationship explored in a really interesting dynamic between, you know, the endless and humanity and uh, this is something that I won't get too into too much right now, but we'll see that you know each character expresses whether they're endless or whether they're human. They each sort of express this sense of being the plaything of the other. The um, dream makes it explicit in the last chapter, uh, and you know I believe Rose does as well there. So it's really interesting to see those. Conflicting perspectives and how they each feel that they're sort of um the 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 playthings of the other. And then, you know, we've got almost more literal dolls. We've got Fiddler's Green, uh, a a sentient place taking on the form of a, of a human being that mimics the author G.K. Chesterton. You know, he almost creates this automaton, uh, that he uses to go and experience the world. Um, you have a character literally named Dolly, uh, how Rose's landlord, Hal, goes out and, and expresses himself using this sort of vehicle. And then you've got the, you know, in a a little broader sense, the collectors later on, the, the serial killers and their relation to the people, that they murder those these like sort of collected bodies who are who are again are being treated as as sort of as playthings like the Corinthian was, and then finally you've got well you've got desire and pretty much everyone pretty much every character desire interacts with is in some way. Uh, you know, being treated as a doll by them. So there's also another way of thinking about dolls, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's in relation to the concept of the uncanny. Uh, So last week before we started recording, Ben asked all of us if we knew about the story, The Sandman by E.T.A. Hausman. You remember that? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Do you remember how you described that? Would you be willing to go over that again quickly, or has it been a while?
0: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the basic premise of it, uh, or at least like what I was pulling from it, is that you have like this idea that the the Sandman was somebody, was this like creature that was going to come by, and it was going to um, eat the eyeballs of children who wouldn't fall asleep at night was the main thing that I was interested in that connection, like to the Corinthian and how that looked.
2: Yeah. It, 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 it's great. You asked if we were familiar with it at all. And I said, Oh yeah, I actually did know that story because it's significant in, uh, our boy Sigmund Freud's work on the concept, uh, of the uncanny, and that story is actually also concerned a lot with with dolls and this uncertain relation of of the you know the position of a doll as something that seems alive, uh, looks alive, but is but isn't really right. This 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 place of uncertainty is something that Freud uh, really wants to focus in on. He looks at the uh, German word for the uncanny, which is Unheimlich, uh, which means literally. Not of the home or unhomely. So Freud kind of take this to, takes this to mean that the feeling of the uncanny is tied very much to the homely, uh, the familiar, and its opposite, the strange. So it's this feeling of something both strange and familiar at the same time. And the main examples he uses are dolls, doubles, ghosts, automatons things that take the form of something alive but aren't. And that's something that comes up a lot in the story. Uh, As a quick description, there's a a nice little summary from the Culture and Anarchy blog. It says, The uncanny, according to Freud, is both familiar and frightening, a juxtaposition neatly fulfilled by lifelike baby dolls. They're homely objects, uh, reminiscent of childhood innocence, And yet, frequently in books, and particularly films, they echo the past children who love them, have grown old, and died. An old China doll is full of memories not our own, and remind us of the passing of time, a baby that will never grow up, though she might sustain some wounds along the way. A doll is thus also a child's double, another theme of Freud's essay, but one which is destined to remain a child, a static reminder of lost innocence." And so this this almost, this unconscious knowledge, this unconscious connection we're creating creates that feeling of of fear and uncertainty that Freud calls the uncanny. And these are certainly ideas that Neil toys around with, pun intended. Uh, (laughs) I got Ashley with that one. (laughs) Uh, So for example, in this issue, Rose meets Unity and describes her by saying, quote, she looked lost and fragile like a little China doll, Um, which is kind of ironic once we get to the end of the storyline. But she goes on in that moment to say, and weirdly familiar, and I don't know why. So we have this reference to dolls immediately followed by the feeling of the uncanny. That's exactly what it is, right? And we see a, a great deal of doubling as well. So Rose, Miranda, and Unity are doubled in the Maiden, Mother, and Crone of the Hecate. And then we've got Unity's search for lost family. That's doubled in Rose's own search for Jed. And then later we'll see how the heart-shaped glass from Tales in the Sand is itself doubled. Right? Um, Desire has a twin, which is a kind of double. And Desire lives in a double of herself. You know, she lives in a desire doll. <laughs> so that's not to say that, that Neil is thinking much about Freud or trying to, like, expound on his theory in some way. I just wanted to indicate how these very disparate ideas have been connected by previous thinkers in the hope of seeing how ultimately this is Rose's sort of coming-of-age story and there are ideas we can investigate that sort of tie these threads together.
0: Well, why don't we springboard from one historical German Austrian influencer to another? <laughs> and Ashley, you wanted to talk about Hildegard von Biggen.
1: Yes. Love that
2: transition.
0: <laughs>
1: it was, that <laughs> was,
2: the big bucks. expert. I was wondering how that was going to go down.
1: And thank you, Sean, for your explanation um, about all the symbols and symbolism in these this issue and upcoming issues. Now that you've said all this, like all my synapses are firing. It's like, oh man, I could have done this and this and this, but this is great. I really appreciate it. This is helpful. (laughs) Oh, cool. Um, So yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of um, historic figures, because as I was rereading this issue, it got me sort of wondering what, if vortexes were real and we had seen them throughout history, what they would look like um, <laughs> in history. Nice. So I was, oh, I was, awesome. so I was actually thinking about historic figures and their stories of their own dreams, um, and if, if say, like in a hypothetical world, if vortexes were real, could could these people have been vortex, dream vortexes um, because of the way that they explored sleep dreaming? They expressed their dreams. They tried to immortalize them in some works. And Hildegard von Bingen is one of those key historical figures whose dreams and visions have been recorded throughout time and were discussed that there's she's still a huge figure in academia and not just in theology, but in feminist literature as well. Um, she was a Benedictine abbess writer and poet in the 11th and 12th century. Uh, she was also a composer and she lived in uh, Germany, there are more surviving chants by Hildegard than by any other composer from the entire Middle Ages. And she is one of the few known composers to have written both the music and the libretto of her work. So she's incredibly accomplished already. And especially for her time. Um, it's rare to have a woman of her station Um, it's weird to have a woman in the middle ages who not only was as accomplished as she was, but also in the arts and having her works performed throughout Germany. Um, one of these works, the Ordo Virtuum is an early example of liturgical drama and arguably one of the oldest surviving morality plays. So if you've ever heard of like the Noah play, the Adam and Eve play, um,
0: Yeah, I I was reading up on Hildegard after you put it in the notes and just seeing kind of everything, you know, that she did. And I had to look up the um, monophony, Mm -hmm. which is he is the best known composer of those and trying to see what a monophony was, um, which sounds like that was kind of what you were getting at. It's just this uh, it's a melody sung by a single player Mm -hmm. or um, played by a single instrument player. Uh, without any other hum, uh, harmony or, or chord. So a lot of folk songs and traditional songs are, are monophonic.
1: Yes, yes. And and her her works, if you... Because you can listen to them. You can find whole compilations of, of performers uh, recording her music. And there's also been a lot of experimentation with her work that... I mean, honestly, our producer, Pat, might f- find interesting because people have now been experimenting it with... Um, with using their computer to modulate and to add to the vision that she was trying to bring to the musical tools that were available to to her at the time that maybe fell short to some extent based off of what she was trying to express, she was experiencing. Um, So there has been a lot of interesting development with her music, especially when it comes to like contemporary methods of producing Music and like pitch bending, etc. So it's just really, really fascinating. Um, the morality play I was thinking of that people may have experienced or read in a in a literature class is *Everyman*, which is basically a literal a character, the Everyman, is walking through various moral pitfalls, and you're watching him sort of experience and dodge, you know, these very basic sort of daily slice slice of life things uh, where you have anthropomorphic personifications trying to ensnare him and, and such so the the one that she wrote the Ordo um, virtuum is really her trying to put to stage what she was experiencing with regard to whether she share what she was dreaming envisioning uh, with other people because she had a she'd a great anxiety about sharing this which I think anybody, would if they started experiencing odd dreams that they felt had some sort of bearing to reality i think we'd all do with a a, a case of um of humility but she is also noted for the invention of a constructed language known as the lingua ignota and she has also been considered by scholars to be the founder of scientific natural history in germany so she's she's not just some woo woo nutso lady that is like cloistered and alone and not educated. She's incredibly educated and incredibly accomplished. Uh, And she had numerous prophetic and mystical visions purportedly during her life and is said to have been a miracle worker. So Hildegard was the 10th child of noble parents and as such was tithed to the church. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with that term. No, you give ten percent of of what you have oh, to the church. Tithe. I
2: got gotcha. you.
1: Oh, forgive me. I will try to enunciate more clearly. <laughs> so, so that meant that she was then given to the church for religious education. She was educated at a Benedictine cloister uh, in Disbodenberg by Utah, an anchorite. An anchorite is a religious recluse. It's a it's an order. Uh, when she was 15 years old, she began wearing the Benedictine habit and pursuing a religious life on her own terms. And she succeeded Utah as the prioress, which is like the second to an abbess in 1136. She had already been experiencing visions as a child, but she didn't start coming forward with any of these until the age of 43. When she finally talked to her confessor, who is a person you go to to confess sin, and usually you pick like one to stick with, you don't just bounce around from confessional to confessional, especially if you're you know, cloistered. Um, and the confessor then reported the matter to the Archbishop of Mainz, And then organized a committee of theologians to review said visions. So this is like serious stuff. This isn't something where they go, oh, neat. We needed one of those. We've been out for a while. Let's get these down. This is something that's like explored, tested. They like go through all of the... Um, scripture, and the study of the scripture, and any catechism they have, they go through all of it, anything that's been historically recorded, and review it to see if it tracks at all, if there's any consistency. They're not just taking anything and hoping that it's popular. Um, So this is, is pretty serious business for someone to come forward and say, hey, I'm experiencing visions. And so in having had then uh, that committee of theologians, they confirmed the authenticity of Hildegard's visions and a monk was then appointed to help her record them. So mm-hmm. she wasn't writing them herself. She had to speak them out to this guy, this other monk that was helping track them down and and get an orderly sort of account of what she was experiencing and then the
2: one guy who's really interested in hearing stories about other people's (laughs) dreams right
1: exactly i feel like i feel like uh, bex and pat and i we all need a monk to walk around and track down our dreams for us instead of me trying to like furiously write it down in my notes app on my phone after i wake up um so that finished work then that they worked on together uh, was then called the Skivias. Uh, and that was in so much as publishing was around uh, 1141 to 1152 is when they worked on that. And then uh, 1152 is when it was issued. And that consists of 26 visions that are pr- considered prophetic and apocalyptic in form. And I've talked about apocalypse before on the podcast, but just as a quick review, it it refers to end things or the end times. She's not suggesting that that's exactly how it's going to go down. She's just saying that this is how she experienced it when she was envisioning it. So it's definitely a very visual uh, description. And there were um, what they called illuminations not not illustrations, but illuminations of what she was describing from her visions that she then sort of supervised the creation of. This is not a talent she had out of, you know, all of the other talents she had. And when you look at those panels, they're incredibly colorful. They're very detailed. Um, one of them has to do with like a choir of angels, and it's very circular and symmetric. So it's just, it's it, it's an incredibly detailed piece of work that is, not common, again, for someone coming forward with something. It's just as detailed as it is. It's very interesting uh, historically.
2: Yeah, check out, if you can ch- take a look at, like, illuminated manuscripts. They're so cool. Just, like, go yeah. and look some up and find them and and look through them. They're, they're just awesome. My wife used to work on them all the time. Um, and sometimes she'd share images, so I always liked seeing it.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really cool. So some of these visions, I mean, it's broken down into a couple different sections. So the structure, the first part has to do with the construction of humanity, the construction of the earth. Uh, Part two has to do with Christ and virtue, etc. Part three has to do more with uh, the apocalypse. And so, you know, just to give you an example of what this kind of reads like, and it's, I mean, it really is kind of nuts, but The very first one in the section vision one, God enthroned shows himself to Hildegard. Uh, It says, I saw a great mountain the color of iron and enthroned on it one of such great glory that it blinded my sight. On each side of him were extended a soft shadow like a wing of wondrous breadth and length. Before him at the foot of the mountain stood an image full of eyes on all sides in which because of those eyes I could discern no human form. In front of this image stood another, a child wearing a tunic of subdued color but white shoes, upon whose head such glory descended from the one enthroned upon that mountain that I should not look at his face. But from the one that sat enthroned upon the mountain, many living sparks sprang forth which flew very sweetly around the images. Also I perceived in this mountain many little windows in which appeared human heads, some of subdued colors and some white. So again, like setting the stage for a very epic sort of scene. That's just how the book begins. Um, and it continues on, um, where she, she ends up seeing humans as living sparks, uh, And that these sparks must be indicative of God's love coming from God as daylight comes from the sun. So like, again, there's another illustration of God on this mountain and these sparks sort of like touching humanity and that being indicative of humanity being good. Um, And she describes a lot of uh, the original harmony of creation. So being in harmony with creation, being in harmony with nature, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Virtuous living reduces the estrangement from God and nature. So for her, harmony and balance towards things uh, is really, is clearly very important and then is demonstrated throughout her skivias. So then between 1152 and 1162, Hildegard often preached throughout Germany, specifically in Rhineland, Her monastery was placed under interdict though, interestingly, and interdict means like it was being punished. You couldn't go there anymore. uh, Because she had permitted the burial of a young man who had been excommunicated, which is a big no-no. If someone's been excommunicated in the Catholic church at this time, you do not give them last rites. Yeah, but you're done. You do not bury them in your cemetery. She did anyway. She's like, no, it's fine. He received last rites. He confessed. He made himself right with the church. I'm doing this. So she really rose above her station, not only in the fact that she went on preaching tours, which was not done frequently, especially for a prioress and then later an abbess, um, but also to have been promoted as this musician or not musician, as this composer and also then to go against like bishops and what they've told her to do or not do to go against that suggests that she really had some moxie so that that is kind of provoked scholars to consider like okay you know when it came to her visions these visions that she professed as to being too lowly to commit to the page originally she was again she sort of sort of promoted this really humble posture of, Oh, I don't know anything. I don't speak the languages. I can't interpret scripture. I am merely, you know, X, Y, Z really definitely presenting this like humble servant of the Lord. Um, some scholars suggest that that was posturing and that she was sort of suggesting that. So then people would trust what she was saying more because she appeared humble. Um, and then that would allow her then to share more because she'd be more trustworthy because she wasn't she was a woman. And so if she is still playing to type, then that means that she's not actually trying to pull one over on us. She actually had these visions and that they're legit. But again, if you read the writing itself, it's it's very provocative, um, again, for his time. But even now reading it, I'm just like, what were you on? It's beautiful, but this is so very strange. And so, and again, because of the length and the amount of detail that goes into each of her visions, it really is hard to just sort of ignore and and sort of, you know, wave away as being a one-off stupid little dream because of how consistent it is and because of how imaginative it is. Um, so she's just she's just a really fascinating woman. She also had a lot to say about, uh, like I said, um, natural medicine. She influenced a lot of even uh, contemporary m- medicinal practices in Germany today. Um, there are still things that, that she did that, they put into practice. And, um, she had a lot to say about sleep actually as well. So she suggested that sleep, uh, when you're sleeping, the body is asleep, but your soul is awake. And that allows you to interact with the heavenly realms, et cetera. And you see that throughout history as well. Like you see, you see that in Egyptian culture, there's a lot of hieroglyphics of people sleeping and their spirit sort of hovering above them as like a winged creature. Right. Um, right. And you see that in a lot of other cultures as well. But it's still, again, for her time, just a really fascinating woman who had a lot to say about the world and definitely uh, exceeded her station in life.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Ashley, for that overview. Sean, you had also wanted to talk about symbols as they relate to the second part of the title of the issue, Houses.
2: Yeah, so let's think a little bit about houses and what they mean. So they offer us protection from the elements and all that might threaten us, but they're also enclosures that divide us and separate us from one another and the world. So I think you know taking that almost metaphorically where characters decide to put up their walls and how they separate themselves in this book is a really important concept and that's all explored through rose our central character uh and her story you know rose is i would say pretty distant uh reserved like she's very smart and capable and like she understands things intellectually but I would also say that she's very closed off emotionally. And this story is one of her sort of discovering intimacy, you know? Um, kind of letting those walls down and letting other people in. Um, seeing other people and and, and seeing herself, um, you know? But there's a danger there too the danger of intimacy is that you're no longer entirely in control of yourself. You're really affected by what happens with others, and you're truly exposed. So her journey is navigating how and where to put up her walls, when to open her doors, and when to close them. Um, And so kind of like on the far side of that, right, we've got Desire, who lives in this, vast replica of herself in a realm all alone you know the first thing we're seeing this is the first time we've seen another of the endless's realms and it's completely devoid of any being except uh, desire you know and and the the neil is at pains to point out that the eardrums are larger than a dozen marble ballrooms right and you could wander these veins for your entire life and you get lost in them and you die before you found your way out And they're here by themselves. Desire's here uh, by themselves. Even the being closest to them, despair, does not seem like someone they're intimate with exactly. Like, desire talks, desire asks to talk with despair and despair corrects them and points out that it really means despair listening to desire, right? And then even Desire's realm itself is called the Threshold, right? It's a border and a boundary. Um, So this is being set up from the very first pages of the issue. And then we've got Dream, who lives in a realm populated by numerous others. We know that it's 11,062 others because there's a census in this issue. But where is he? He's like all alone in his throne room until Lucian intrudes on him. And we've already seen how closed off he can be in Tales in the Sand and later when we get to Men of Good Fortune. Like, this is definitely a guy with intimacy issues. And Rose herself, uh, as I said, she's pretty closed off. Um, In the comic, unlike the TV show, she doesn't have a, a best friend like Lyda hanging around or a friend who will house sit for her while she's gone. She's not instantly close with Hal and Gilbert and her housemates, as in the show, right? She's a very different character in this way. She doesn't even seem that close to her own mother. And to illustrate that, I think in, in the when we first met Rose, when they're coming in uh, for a landing in the plane that they're using to, to fly to England, you know, she's on the flight. And she's sitting with Miranda, her mother, but they're not sitting next to each other. There's an empty seat between them, and the panel borders, dialogue, and narration emphasize that space uh, between them. And then there's also, you know, as I said before, Rose Unity and Miranda, Rose Miranda Unity uh, meeting where there's they they're sitting and facing a mirror together, and it echoes the fates as maiden, mother, and crone. Right. And I think, you know, Neil thought this parallel was significant because I can't see any other reason for Miranda Walker to exist in this story. Like she really doesn't do anything or change in any significant way at all. Uh, And in the TV show, they excised her entirely. But I think if you put it in the context of them being sort of doubles of the fates Uh, And and total opposites, it becomes, you know, maybe a little bit more meaningful. Because the Fates, you know, they're almost omniscient, they're mysterious and powerful, and they're deeply connected, right? They're the three-in-one, the one-in-three. Well, the Walker-Kincaid family is definitely not three-in-one at these early stages. They're confused, they're hesitant, they're unsure even of their own connection to each other, right? They don't even know they're related at first. And it's only when they let down their boundaries between each other, particularly Rose and Unity, that they can do something even beyond the endless. But before we get there, um, we'll be learning a bit more about the vortex itself, uh, which you know Ashley has also been talking about. It's essentially a force that breaks down the barriers between sleeping dreamers. It's this wild and unrestrained intimate connection with all of existence and you can imagine for someone who's as reserved and distrustful as Rose, there may be a part of her that yearns to connect with others but hasn't developed the tools to do it. So there's all this pressure built up that finally explodes in this total dissolution of boundaries. Of course, we'll talk more about that uh, later. Um, for now, I'll just mention in passing some of the other walls characters put up so they can play in fantasy, protected from the outside world, right? There's Hector and Lyda in their superheroic fantasy. We'll meet soon. There's Brute and Glob hidden away in their own dreaming with their own Sandman. And there's the Collectors with their fantasies that justify their horrific acts. You know, these fantasies that Morpheus later denies them. And then, of course, there's a literal dollhouse uh, where Morpheus watches Rose in what has to be one of the creepiest sequences in the whole series to me. (laughs) And I'm not not taking that any further. It's just so creepy, that series of panels where tiny Morpheus is just sitting in the dollhouse sort of smiling enigmatically and like watching this girl's life go on. So weird. (laughs) But yeah, think about houses as we continue reading. Think about houses and walls. So, Ashley, you had said uh, that you had
0: one other person lined up that could potentially have been a dream vortex. Do you want to talk to us a little bit more about Otto Lüvy?
1: Yeah, another German. Go figure. Hilarious. So maybe there's something to do with Germany and dreams. But this was a pharmacologist from the 19th and 20th century whose discovery of acetylcholine um, which is ironically a neurotransmitter which promotes dreaming, uh, helped advance medical therapy. The discovery was earned him the Nobel Prize 13 years after he had discovered it. However, he is almost as famous for the means by which he discovered it as the discovery itself. So naturally occurring acetylcholine was first isolated in 1913 by English chemist Arthur James Ewens at the urge of his colleague uh, physiological. Physiologist Sir Henry Dale, who in 1914 described the chemicals' actions, so they had like an idea of that this existed and possibly what it did. Uh, but then the actual functional significance to us as humans uh, was honed in on by. Um, Louvy. So in 1921, Louvy dreamed of an experiment that would prove once and for all that the transmission of nerve impulses was chemical, not electrical. He had woken up from that dream, scribbled the experiment down, and then went back to sleep. Unfortunately, the next morning, even though he rose excited to try this experiment, he was horrified that he couldn't read his midnight handwriting. so he had nothing to go off of so he is quoted as saying that that day was the longest day of his life because he was trying to piece together these disparate memories of that dream and how that experiment was trying to was supposed to go so he could actually demonstrate this transition of nerve impulses through acetylcholine so then later Louis was able to demonstrate that um when he was able to dream this dream again the second night. (laughs) So I don't know if you've, right. Like how frequently do you have the same dream twice? And he was able to immediately wake up, go and perform this experiment and then was able to find make his findings conclusive. So, he was able to demonstrate that acetylcholine is liberated when the vagus nerve is stimulated. So, anybody who's ever had like an anxiety disorder or anything, if you've ever held like cold bag of peas to your chest or anything while you're having a panic attack and it calms you down, it's because that acetylcholine is slowing your heartbeat down. It's triggered by that new sensory. Um, that that sensory experience. So then subsequently, he and others were able to show that this chemical was also liberated as a transmitter of the motor end plate and the muscles of the vertebrate of vertebrates. So subsequently, it was identified as a transmitter of many neural synapses and in many in invertebrate systems as well. So then, due to that work, we've been able to sort of as much as there aren't cures for things like Alzheimer's and myasthenia gravis, shout out to my stepdad and Parkinson's, uh, this acetylcholine is tied to that, in which there isn't when there's an imbalance of that in dopamine, or if there is too little acetylcholine, then you'll have these neurological disorders that keep you from being able to have smooth motor function or to be able to like control parts of your face and such because there's that imbalance. And it's due to him that we can now isolate those things and then prescribe drugs to help balance all of that out or um, have blockers to keep it from triggering too frequently. Uh, Because then when you have too much acetylcholine and not enough dopamine, you'll have like, like with Parkinson's, the shakes, you'll have an inability to be able to like smoothly perform general actions. So uh, just, I thought that was fascinating that he was able to isolate something such as that, prove not only that it was critical to our brain function but then how it functioned and that that has since been linked to dreaming and other functions of the brain to be able to exist (laughs) and isolate and treat uh, people decades later all from a dream
2: a dream he was able to have twice right that's the craziest part to me
1: twice yeah same dream twice And so detailed. And he's not the only scientist who has had a dream that linked them to later findings. Um, The guy who was able to come up with the formula for pi came from a dream in which he had a dream of a Hindu goddess explaining through, like, a screen of blood this formula that he was then able to prove pi. Einstein expressed having a dream in which he was sledding down a hill, and then it ended up going faster than stars, and so there were streaks. Um, and then was able to like get up in the morning and jot some stuff down to be able to produce an experiment. So there are like a lot of scientists that are like, I had this dream, I'm going to try it out and ended up being right. And the only one that is the guy who discovered the shape of an atom, same thing.
2: These are all way better than Newton getting hit on the head with an apple. Like these are way better scientific, (laughs) uh, origin stories
1: yeah i just i think it's fascinating that people who are discovering like the fundamental building blocks of science are like yeah i just dreamed about it so i went with it
0: (laughs) well you gotta remember like they were also doing a lot of cocaine at this point as well (laughs) and i just wonder if with the plummeting use of cocaine and the scientific endeavors if that's why we're really not seeing the big discoveries anymore
1: people aren't doing enough coke (laughs) Not we're not we're not breaking those those barriers that Sean's been describing <laughs> yeah. enough. You heard it here first. Do more drugs.
0: Man, if we had poll quotes for this podcast, that would be
2: the poll quote <laughs> at the start of the episode. Do more drugs, Sandman man unlocked. <laughs> Verified. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Sean, you were going to bring us home today on our discussion uh, by talking about the expansion of the DC universe, the building, the, it's getting more robust, more built out.
2: Yeah. And honestly, this is really like, all I really wanted to talk about, this whole thing got started just because I love the sequence in this book so much where Rose falls asleep in the back of Holdaway's car And then the page perspective shifts. So we're reading kind of horizontally across the page instead of vertically. And the interesting thing is if you are at least the digital copy that I have uh, reorients these pages so that you don't really notice a difference, Um, it completely removes the effect.
1: Argument against e-reading.
2: Yeah, yeah, afraid so. But in my version, you can see how once Rose falls asleep, you have to turn the comic sideways to continue reading it successfully. And I think that's such an uh such an awesome uh gimmick there, and it's such a cool way of showing uh, you know, Rose's slip sideways from the world of consciousness into this dream she's having um, that I wanted an excuse to talk about anything related to it just to bring that up.
0: Well, it's it's like in a lot of um, like in the show that I watched, Westworld, uh, they use the aspect ratio to let you know like when you were in a simulation versus when you were in the real world. Oh, do they really? Like one of those ways. Of flexing, of utilizing the medium, or like think about when things go into slow mo, like in movies, or when things you know shift from like a four three perspective to a sixteen by nine perspective, like those are really cool tools to let you know oh, something
2: is different here.
1: Yeah, they do the same thing in Severance. Mm-hmm. I uh, of you mm-hmm. watch that.
2: Severance is great. I love little formal tricks like that. I just think they're great, and and Neil Gaiman is is so good at, at writing them into the scripts. But we're also like learning a lot about the world the Sandman inhabits here. You know, this is the most endless we've seen in any issue so far. We get three members of the endless in this issue. So we're meeting uh, Sandman's family here. And so I thought I could start by just talking. And a mention of a fourth. I don't even remember which one that was. Who gets mentioned? The prodigal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So this is the first. That's awesome. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about creating the Endless and some of the other characters we see in here. Again, coming from the Sandman Companion. Essentially, Neil Gaiman, in thinking up the Endless, kind of realizes he's not any good, according to him, at writing superheroes, Um, at least not as good as contemporaries of his, like Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Kurt Busiek. Um, On the other hand, he says, I can write science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So I decided to find a way to cheat way through. That is, to come up with characters who look enough like superheroes to entice a comics reader into giving them a try, but who aren't really superheroes at all. So he says that made him think of this novel, Lord of Light, a 1967 novel by Roger Zlasny. He says, the book struck me as a very interesting model because it's about people who take on the attributes of Hindu gods, constituting, in effect, a heavenly legion of superheroes, I liked that approach, but I decided to take it a step further. Instead of writing about humans acting as gods, why not just write about gods? He says, this especially appealed to me because Superman had just been revamped to give him fewer abilities. That was in that uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, reboot that I talked about in an earlier episode. The reasoning at the time being that one couldn't weave interesting stories around a character who was too powerful. And this is still an idea you'll see floating around. Um, You know, every few months there's like an anti-Superman, pro-Superman argument on Twitter, right? Um, Where people argue that you can't tell interesting stories about Superman. He's just too sort of all-powerful. Well, Neil says, that struck me as wrong-headed. So I thought, okay, I'll do a series that starts out with characters who are virtually all-powerful and I'll see where I can go from there, which I think is just a cool challenge to issue yourself and look what it's given us. Um, For Desire in particular, the visual inspirations were Patrick Nagel's art from the 80s. So if you, I mean... You might not recognize the name, but you'll have seen the art from the 80s. Uh, obsidian hair, porcelain skin, bladed cheekbones, mysterious gaze. Uh, you, will, you will recognize it when you see it. It's been described as, quote, capturing the emotional state of an era. 1980s American desire, wink, wink, collective materialistic aspiration. Um, so this seems like too perfect. Uh, for what Neil Gaiman was going for in the character of Desire, the other was the other inspiration was Annie Lennox, um, half of the band the Eurythmics, uh, particularly in like 1987. You know, sort of cute and androgynous, and the androgyny was important for Neil because it balanced the endless on one side. Right, you have three men, three women, and then Desire, and of course the character itself has to. Embody everything uh, One might desire You know Um, I don't know There weren't furries then So that's like A whole other thing But Although Desire has Like cat ears And a tail on In a later episode So Maybe Neil was thinking About that too Oh god (laughs) Neil getting a closet furry I want to call this out. This is interesting because Neil says Desire is not so much of a villain as one half of a personality clash between them and Dream. And we just happen to be seeing it from Dream's perspective. So he says, if I were to write the same story from the perspective of Desire comics, readers would see the extent to which Desire perceives the Sandman as unbearably stuffy and irritating. And Dream would start looking like the bad guy. Uh, so I thought that was a that was a nice mention there. Despair, more of a sad origin story. Uh, Gaiman said he found the inspiration in an 80s photography book called Modern Primitives. And one photo was titled, one photo was titled Mandy from Mars. And Neil says it showed a strange, quote, fat, snaggletooth, naked woman staring forward. I took one look and said, that's despair. Um... <laughs> So huh. that's where he got that from. For better or worse, we don't know that woman as well as Cinnamon Hadley, unfortunately. Um, but Jill Thompson, who illustrated a later volume, said it was like really fun drawing despair, especially after drawing all those like idealized figures you would otherwise see in comics, like all these perfect proportions and and things like that. Like it was it was, it was a breath of fresh air to 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 draw something, someone that doesn't look like that. You know, but she's also difficult because if you draw her from any angle other than straight on, she just turns into a little ball. So it'll be interesting to see as we move through the series and Despair reappears how often are people drawing her straight on, like she is in this issue, and uh, versus drawing a little ball. So we see another of the Endless's Realm for the first time, uh, Desire Citadel, and I just loved. I love like larger than life descriptions. So I love that the eardrums are larger than a dozen marble ballrooms, like not just ballrooms, but marble ballrooms, you know, Uh, I I love that kind of description. And we learn how the endless call one another, right? How they get a hold of each other. They have a gallery with each of their sigils in it. And they say, I stand in my gallery and I hold your sigil, you know, Uh, so learning those little intricacies are so interesting to me. We also uh, see a great deal more of the Dreaming. You know, we see Dream's Throne Room, I think, for the first time. And it's just so, it's such a beautiful panel, that that one. Uh, I won't talk too much more about it in case someone takes it. But it's just a great, uh, it, it's a great Throne Room. It's gorgeous. Uh, and then we learn a lot more about the nightmares and dreams that inhabit the dreaming we learn about the corinthian bruton club fiddler's green you know how many residents are there the kind of bureaucratic structure right they have a census um we learn that there's a division among age between the eldest uh, and the younger endless right uh despair says the elder three destiny death and dream don't play our games right um, we learn about the the other things uh, in the House of Secrets, the bottle imp, the something nasty in the basement. And we see Lucian walking through all these this sort of shifting realm of dream that, you know, until now, we'd pretty much just seen the outside of the castle, House of Secrets and Mysteries, and the nightward shores of dream. But here we're seeing, like, subway tracks. We're seeing that weird mannequin section, uh, another kind of dolls there. Uh, See the gates of Horn and Ivory, you know, uh, uh, a house built into a stone in a kind of green glade. And I just thought that expansion of the world of the Dreaming was notable and worth mentioning. And then, you know, I'll just end by sharing a final interaction in an interview with Neil Gaiman, where Highbender of the Sandman Companion asks, are all those beings really needed by the Sandman to maintain the Dreaming? And Neil answers, oh, not at all. He could actually run the whole place by himself. And Highbender asks, well, why create all those servants to help out? And Neil answers, fundamentally, he likes the company. I always assumed the Sandman spent millions of years in a version of the Dreaming completely on his own. And I think he quite enjoys the alternative of having others around, although he'd never admit it. And then he notes, I should add that the Sandman didn't create all the beings in the Dreaming. Some of them were fleeing from other places and took refuge there. Others wound up there by accident and decided to stay. And given the nature of the place, some of them were spontaneously born there. So I just loved uh, hearing all that insight on how he populated the dreaming and and created the characters of the endless.
0: I have to say, this Lord of Light novel looks awesome.
2: Really, I
0: just pulled it. Yeah, the the um. Here are the opening lines. His followers called him Mahasam Atman and said he was a god. He preferred to drop the Maha and the Atman, however, and called himself Sam. He never claimed to be a god,
2: but he never claimed not to be a god.
0: What a <laughs> great opening line to a book.
2: That is great. That is great. I will usually make my book choices based on opening a line, by the way. Like, yeah. if it's not a good opening line, back on the shelf. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's that time of the episode where we talk about our
0: favorite panel and our favorite non-Sandman character. Uh, so it looks like Ashley is up first this week for her favorite panel.
1: Ooh, okay. So my favorite panel... It's nothing... It's nothing too deep. I just... It made me giggle when I was reading this again. Uh, it's... At the... Almost at the very beginning, we see Desire. They're in the threshold, and they're about to call up Despair. But right before they call up Despair, uh, they're standing in front of Dream sigil and saying, I'm watching you. So it's the panel right after they say, I'm watching you. And they just smooch the helmet. <laughs> and there's a little heart. That made me laugh so hard. I just, I had forgotten about it. And the fact that there is just that little, that little heart next to it makes all the difference.
2: Yeah. We don't get a lot of those little comic, comic icons uh, no. in the Sandman because it, 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 it usually hews towards like realism or, you know, sort of elaborate fantasy, but this, that's like a pure comic moment, right? It'd be like if yeah. Desire like stubbed their toe and there was like dollar symbols and uh, right. a pound signs appearing above their head.
1: Yeah, no, no, exactly. It just, it, it felt so purely its own thing. And it reminded me, oh, we're in the threshold. Things are done differently here compared to the dreaming or anywhere else. Uh, So I just like the fact that there's even world building in the threshold, not just in the description of the threshold, but that we have this sort of comic moment that's sort of cheeky as desire always is. And I just really love that.
0: Thanks Ashley. So mine actually we've already talked about it and it is when Dream is in the dollhouse and it's the final panel <laughs> of him just sitting there with his little hand perched on his chin <laughs> and just a glint in his eye as he watches all this happen and I'm I mean going to destroy you. And my background for that panel is pink just so you all know
1: Really?
2: Mm-hmm. Not sure if I got recolored. The
1: fixer didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, mine's blue. I don't
2: think any pink panels. Yeah, definitely, definitely blue. Interesting. The
0: recolorization comes at us again. All right, Sean, what do you got for a panel?
2: All right, well, I'm not going to talk about the Throne Room panel because that's, like, obviously a really great one. It's so grand and big. It runs across two pages.
0: All right, um, Sean, thanks in, for telling that us about your
2: favorite pres- panel. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> the one I'm choosing. It
1: doesn't. It doesn't matter that you, you for all three of your deep dives get to talk about the entirety of the comic book anyway.
2: (laughs) Oh, there's a lot to say. It's a very rich book. I'm going to go with uh, the panel in the middle of the page. Just after the fates have delivered their prophecy to Rose, she realizes she's standing in a broom closet. She's, out in the hall and she's just like what the hell happened and then her mother calls rose and she's startled and it's that panel where miranda is saying are you okay hun? sorry i startled you and rose is caught uh startled um this one here i love this panel so much because it's just not how people stand in comics <laughs> It's so awkward and it's so clearly like caught off guard and it's so very human. I just love it so much. Uh, it's it's there's not a lot of detail on her face or anything. It's very um, sort of simple line work but it conveys that surprise and shock just perfectly along with that really uh, interesting and and lovely figure work from Dring- Dringenberg.
0: All right Sean, you gotta run it back with your favorite character
2: favorite character you know what? I got to give it to Rose. I don't typically go with obvious choices here, but I got to give it to Rose because when I read this uh, storyline originally, you know, many, many years ago, I kind of thought Rose was a, a boring character and I liked having her as a sort of guide through the plot that's happening. But as I got into this rereading in particular and I kind of like obviously dove a bit more into Rose what I think of Rose's psychology and kind of who she is and what journey she's going on. I came to appreciate her uh, a lot more and kind of what she's being pulled into and how she responds to it and the struggle she goes through. Um so I I'm gonna I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Rose. I'm a big Rose fan now. Excellent, excellent. Um
0: so mine is going to be one that I've probably already used at some point, but I'm I'm bringing him back, and that is Irving slash Goldie makes an appearance. He's back in our hearts. Ashley still wants that plushie, and uh, um, he just makes this little noise. He makes a meep, and then he makes <laughs> a, a, on mine it looks like a darkle little noise, darkle. Um, <laughs> Makes a murk. And it's a, uh, those are such adorable little noises.
2: And I love him for it. Yeah, I love that that snuggling darkle one. That one is particularly Yeah.
0: Alright, Ashley, bring it home. What you got?
1: Alright, so Sean, you brought her up, and I would really be curious at some point for us to discuss how you feel about the, the change in, in removal and, and such, but my favorite character is Miranda. Mainly because she's chain-smoking the entire time. <laughs> you know? That's how she's dealing with her stress. And also, like, she's going to shoot her shot. So they're in the car with Holdaway. And Holdaway is talking about how their client lives 20 minutes from there. And she Miranda says, oh, he must be very rich. And he's like, yes, yes, she is. And her <laughs> response is, she... Oh, which cracks me up. Like she was going for it. She thought this was gonna be her life set in England. You know, like I just thought it was the most hysterical. You know, dare to dream, Miranda.
2: She's got this like nice dress on and the broad-brimmed oh, yeah. hat and everything. Like she's it's a fit. Nine.
1: It's a fit, and uh and yeah, I just. It, she just cracks me up start to finish. Cause even the way she responds to learning that she has a mother, a living mother as well. And how she like expresses that. And she's like sobbing, but she's like, I'm accepting this now. This is our life. I have a mom. Say hi to grandma. We're going to unpack this. Like, she's just chaos.
2: And I adore her for it. I like that. I like that. Giving some, some Miranda love there.
1: Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you both for, Going through this issue uh, with me on this week's episode, Sean in particular wanted to make sure that we continue to focus on the symbols related to both dolls and houses as we go through this book and see how those two things will continue to play out. The ideas of what walls people build up to put structure around to hide things and who is using what as a doll or as a plaything as we go throughout the rest of this? And looking back on that, Ashley had this idea of if there were Dream Four de- Vortexes, if that was something that was a possibility. Who could these people have been? Kind of in our in our world, and she highlighted two: um, Hildegard von Bingen and Otto Louvi, who had a real like a real life impact based on their dreams and kind of what that could tell us about what dreams really do for us and then sean kind of tied a nice bow around everything by walking us through in this issue in particular how we get more and more build out of the sandman universe and we're really excited to see as we now know um, many more of the Endless as we start to meet them and we have these new characters that we're going to be moving along with here over the next 60 issues or so as this sets up really the rest of the story. Thanks for listening to this episode
2: of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.
1: Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked. An Odd Conduit Media Production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Dogson. And find Head Trip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.